We're in the first Sunday of Lent, as Constance mentioned, and the Lenten season takes, is about the 40 days before Easter, and it signifies the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness in preparation for ministry. So Lent serves as a time for the church throughout the world to intentionally be alert and awakened to wilderness realities around us. So historically, some of the way Christians have done this is through fasting from worldly pleasure so they might feast upon God, through taking stock of our faith and paying attention to what sort of temptations might be holding us back from fully living into who God's called us to be, and also sitting with the realities of our humanity, that we are finite and limited. That's why on Ash Wednesday, uh, a minister usually takes an ashes and puts them in the shape of a cross on your head and says, from dust you were created and to dust you shall return. There's something important about us holding on to our limitations, being aware that we are human and God is God, that we are broken and still God's workmanship. So we're taking the six Sundays of Lent to journey together through the, some stories from the Old Testament. As, as Constance mentioned, we're calling it Formed in the Wilderness because throughout Scripture, the wilderness has been a context for transformation. For Jesus, the wilderness was a place where he was formed and he was confirmed to be who he was so that he could have clarity of vision in his ministry. It's telling that three of the four gospel writers found it important enough to include that, his, his little jaunt in the wilderness in their records because it was so pivotal and significant for him. And then we have stories that some of which we'll explore the next six weeks that, um, that show how pivotal the, and formational the wilderness was to God's people, forming them and their futures. So my hope is that through this series, we might become alert to some of the wilderness realities around us, to give some attention to them, because in them, I believe, we encounter God and we're transformed. And so today, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at, the, at Hagar's story, the second time she's in the wilderness. Yes, she gets to be in the wilderness two times in her life, and so we'll look at the second one. But I have to admit, it's, I, it feels a little bit ironic for me to be talking about the wilderness because I'm just, I'm not, I wouldn't, no one would really call me like an outdoorsy wilderness person, okay, like I love the city, um, but I do, I do like hiking, um, COVID has given me kind of a new reminder of, of hiking and how much I love it uh, because there's a path. You know where you're supposed to go and you know where not to go, right? Like I love hiking on that path. And so anyway, uh, in the fall, my husband and I took a little kid-free uh, vacation out to Arizona. We decided to climb down and up the Grand Canyon in a day, 19 miles, let's, let's do it. And uh, I definitely don't want to spend the night in the wilderness. So uh, we went through, and it was the most majestic experience, seeing the beauty of the, of the canyon that I totally didn't understand. I don't, I mean... I like thought it was just you walk to the edge and look down, you know, and it's like so massive, hundreds of miles everywhere. And I loved it. I just, it was like the chaos and the unruliness of nature and it just fed my soul and I felt like the majesty of God. And also I was terrified. Like what happens if you get off the trail? What happens to these people who get lost? Like the whole time I was like, 
loving it and also wondering what in the world happens if you get off this trail, get lost in the wilderness. I know there are some of you in this congregation who like love backpacking and no trails and you're in the wilderness or like the forest and wilderness for a couple of days on end. And like, I want to want to do that so bad. But that's just not, that's not me. But I really like to experience the wilderness from a safe distance as observing. And so all that to say, we as city people don't really find ourselves by mistake in wildernesses here in Chicago. The physical wilderness is not something we, it's something really we have to seek out rather than find ourselves in. But when we think of the wilderness as a symbol or as a descriptor for some of the chaos in our world, for some of the disorientation and vulnerability that we feel, let's call it an internal wilderness, that we're well acquainted with. Many of us have experienced our own tons of wildernesses in this past couple of years, and many of us right now have parts of ourselves that really feel like we're in a deep wilderness. In Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, she describes it as untamed, unpredictable place, a place of solitude and searching. I like this. She says that the wilderness can often feel unholy because we can't control it. And what all wilderness metaphors have in common is that there's um, notions of solitude and vulnerability. So let's, let's think about what we think of when, when we say wilderness or internal wilderness. I think of it as a place where we're confronted with our humanity. Where as we're exposed to the unfamiliar elements around us, we start to recognize that our control is limited. And the tools that we typically use to manage and keep things feeling good for us are suddenly ineffective, right? They don't work the same way in the wilderness. Like think about, you know, when you're driving somewhere and suddenly you're out of service on your phone. Like the most powerful tool you have in your hands is worthless when you're in the wilderness when there's no service. Or like when you've requested an Uber and then your phone dies, and you like don't know, you're like, what, is the Uber coming? Does it know where I am? Like that alone is its own little mini wilderness experience, right? It's, uh. But essentially, when we find ourselves in a space where we don't know what to do, I can't figure it out, my tools, the things that used to work don't work right now, when what you'd hoped for, what you had your hope banked on, it seems to be slipping. When your illusion of control seems like it's gone, you can figure that you're having some sort of wilderness experience. In scripture, there are two main ways, uh, words, Hebrew words, that uh, are translated as wilderness. The first one uh, indicates wasteland or like a desolate place. So that's often um, ex uh, translated as, as desert, but still sometimes as wilderness. And so that's uh, the, that's the way uh, the wilderness for the Israelites, where they wandered for 40 years, it, it was described as that. that. That's a desert wasteland. There's another Hebrew word for wilderness, and actually that means uncultivated land. So it's not barren, it just hasn't produced life yet. We don't know what could be. And that's the type of wilderness that Hagar finds herself in, in Genesis 21. And there's something powerful about that image to me, and I just want us to hold that in our minds, this idea that a wilderness that we are in that looks desolate, that looks barren, that looks like it can't produce anything, maybe it's just, maybe God hasn't cultivated it yet. Maybe it's the fertile ground for God to do deep, abundant work 
in you. In scripture, we also see there's two main ways folks find themselves in the wilderness, like the ways they get there. So first is by choice. Now, I use choice as a loose term because mainly it's they're fleeing for their lives, but, um, or sometimes they're just, they've done something and they need to get away. So that's like Hagar in Genesis 16. She was fleeing from being mistreated. Uh, Jacob in Genesis 28, he had just tricked his brother and his father and he was running for his life. Moses in Exodus 2, he had just killed someone and was running. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, he was fleeing from people who were trying to kill him. So we've got the fleeing story. Another way folks find themselves in the wilderness is through, through God's directing, through God's leading. So Hagar in Genesis 21, God does orchestrate her going into the wilderness. Moses and the Israelites, for like 80% of the Pentateuch, are being led by God through the wilderness. And Jesus, in Luke 4, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. But besides Jesus, whichever way folks got into the wilderness, they generally did not want to be there. And generally, they experienced, well, I, I kind of define it in three different ways. There's, they experienced disorientation, and then that leads to some kind of divine encounter, which then results in reorientation. So disorientation, divine encounter in the midst of that, and then some sort of reorientation. So they didn't really want to be there. The wilderness represents a place that folks didn't want to be. And the reality is that, truthfully, we don't usually want to be in the wilderness, right? We spend a lot of time as a society trying to avoid or ignore the disorientation that comes from being in the wilderness. Like, in our American culture, that's all about progress and upward movement, and you go forward, you don't look back. Doesn't the wilderness feel like a liability? In our capitalist society, where our, where our worth is measured by our productivity and our purchasing power, who's got time to wander? And in our American church culture, we spend a lot of time with self-help books and words trying to figure out how to get through the wilderness faster, like so that we can live our best lives now. I mean, any folks in the early 2000s, evangelical church, like prayer of Jabez. Does anybody remember this? There's a prayer you're supposed to pray that's like enlarge my territory so I can get away from the harm. There were books about it. People were praying it and like, you know, embroidered things everywhere. I mean, our church culture like really wants to get through these wilderness realities. We want to be hashtag blessed. Ugh. All of that gives us the idea that sitting in disorientation might actually be unchristian. Yeah. Yeah. We think we've got to get out. If you, don't you have hope in God? Get through it already. But the reality, and so the reality is when disorientation starts to sneak up on us, we think that we should outmanage and outprogram and outstrategize this disorientation. Not only do we think we can, we think we should. We should get through this. And yet the gospel invites us into a different way. Priest and theologian Barbara Brown Taylor, she, I love the way she puts it. She says, as, as much as we might prefer to avoid it, the wilderness is where God is. 
The wilderness is where God does some of God's best work. The wilderness is where God does some of God's best work. And so these next six weeks, let's be countercultural and resist the temptation to ignore wilderness realities, but instead let's be attentive to them to see what God is trying, what kind of life is God's trying, trying to plant in us, to cultivate in us. Because it's through our disorientation and encounters with God that, that God does some of God's best work for our good and for the good of others. So let's look briefly at Hagar's wilderness experience. So some of you might not be familiar with Hagar. Um, so this, she has, she's found in two chapters in the book of Genesis. And her story is highly complex and deeply unsettling. When you really look at her story, you're going to wrestle. <laughs> this is a story of a marginalized woman living in a patriarchal society that she's used and dismissed by people who God has made a promise with. This is a story of economic discrimination. This is a story of how women might um, often oppress each other in fights for power and privilege rather than standing in solidarity with each other. We see that happening all around us and we're complicit in that as well. Many of us are. This is a story of God working through imperfect people and unjust realities to fulfill God's promise and to show God's character and redemption. We can learn a lot about God's character and, God, and ourselves through wrestling with this mess of a story. But we're actually not going to focus on any of those things today. I'm so sorry. I really would love to. And so if you would like to talk with me later about all of those things, please, I would love it. But we need to give our attention to just Hagar in the wilderness and the way she encounters God in that. So quick context before we actually read the text in Genesis 21. So Hagar is an Egyptian maidservant of Abraham and Sarah. And God has made a covenant with Abraham that God is going to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. But Abraham and Sarah were old and barren, and they got impatient, and they tried to use Hagar to be a surrogate to fulfill God's promise. Hagar got pregnant, was mistreated, and escaped into the wilderness. This is all happening in Genesis 16. While she's fleeing, she stops by a spring of water. God meets her and demonstrates God's compassion and care for her and promises her a future and a son. And she proclaims that God is the God who sees. And so she goes back to Abraham and Sarah and trusts that God, the God who saw her in the wilderness, will continue seeing her and fulfill God's promise. So fast forward 15 years. We're at Genesis 21. And it seems that God's keeping God's promise. She's, her son is growing up. And it looks like her son's probably going to get some inheritance from Abraham and will you know, be able to produce descendants and be a great nation. But then Sarah, in her old age of 90, gets pregnant and has the promised child. And Sarah starts to view Hagar as a threat rather than an ally. And she tells Abraham to send Hagar away because she doesn't want Hagar to have any of her son's inheritance. Abraham is understandably conflicted, um, as he should be. Um, but God assures Abraham that God will not abandon Hagar. And God will fulfill God's promise to her in a different way. And, and 
essentially says, go ahead and send her into the wilderness. So Abraham sends Hagar on her way. So this is where we get to Genesis 21, to the words of holy words of scripture. So I'll read that for us now. It should be up on the screen. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. And she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we find Hagar walking, actually wandering aimlessly through the wilderness. If you imagine with me, as she takes each step, we don't know if Abraham said to her before she left, like, hey, God just told me, like, he's not going to abandon you, so it's okay. We don't know if he said that, but I still imagine, even if she heard those words, walking out into the wilderness, each step is a step away from what she understood to be descendants and future and promise. Didn't God promise? Did I make that up? That powerful experience with God who sees me 15 years ago? Did I mess it up? Did I thwart God's plan? Is this plan B? Maybe you've had similar questions rolling through your mind when you find yourself wandering in an unfamiliar land where God seems distant and the future you envisioned for yourself kind of fades away. At some point, Hagar realized she couldn't keep walking. She couldn't keep wandering. And she realized that there was nothing else that she and her son could do. I believe it took everything in Hagar to stop walking to stop wandering, to let go. And so she stopped and she laid down that which she holds most dear, her precious son. I just, just want to recognize that the intensity of this moment, when you enter into the despair that Hagar is experiencing here, some of us in this room might know that level of an intensity of despair. Maybe it's through catastrophic loss. Maybe it's through a traumatic event in your life. And, I, and I, my prayer this week has been that if that is something you feel really deeply, that this scripture would help you know that you're not alone in your pain, know that you're not alone in that despair. Because we get to God hearing their cries. 
But I think all of us can resonate with kind of, if we step back from the particular pain of Hagar and go into the general, we can relate to the general experience of disorientation when you have to come to grips with the reality that you truly don't have control. Like, obviously, we can use the pandemic as an example of this. We have had a universe, an experience of universal disorientation. We can't control this virus. And, you know, we've really gotten, some of us have gotten just kind of accustomed to that kind of disorientation, right? We've like lived in a world of many, many, well, we've got pandemic and then 2016 and all that stuff. So anyway, we had a long time of disorientation for a lot of us. But there's also parts of our lives that we're still not familiar with how out of control they might feel. And so when you are in that place, what do you do? When all hope for that job that you really thought would work falls through, when that relationship that you thought was the one is over, when we hear another mass shooting, when we see the war in Ukraine, when we can't control any of it, what do we do? If you're like me, do you ramp up your controlling tendencies in other parts of your life? Do you disengage entirely? Do you protect yourself by becoming cynical, judgmental? That doesn't surprise me. Well, Hagar stops. She lays down her son and her hope for the future and cries. I think it's interesting that the scriptures don't say that she cried out to God. They simply say she weeps. She cries out. And the text says that God heard those cries. The same God who saw Hagar 15 years ago found her again and heard the desperate cries. Not just her cries, but the cries of her son. God didn't need Hagar to explain why she was weeping. God was already attentive to that which she was weeping for. The concern she felt alone in caring God was already caring. She wasn't isolated in holding in being in charge of saving her son's life. God was already attentive. So as we look at the sacred moment between God and Hagar, I want to offer one encouragement to us and one challenge. On the encouraging side, so Hagar didn't cry out to God, she just cried out. And some might say, That doesn't really demonstrate deep faith, right? She and Ishmael just cry. And uh, and so so it doesn't say like, Ishmael and Hagar cried out to God and therefore God heard them. We don't get a nice formula for how God hears us. But for those of us who think that the most, in our most disorienting moments, in order for God to hear us, we have to have a superhuman response. We have to have a fake praise or say the right words. This shows us that God's presence is not dependent on her or our performance. We don't need to perform a response to God. God's faithfulness is not contingent on our faithfulness. And God's compassion is not something for us to earn. We don't have to prove to God of the estate that we are in of our pain. Theologians call this an, this, an attribute of God is omnibenevolence, 
omnibenevolence, say that fast. It means maximum compassion at all times. God can't be more compassionate because God's 100% always compassionate at, on us. When we are deep in disorientation despair, we don't need to put up a front. We don't need to try and pretend that we're unaffected, but in our most helpless and helpless estates and our cries actually move the heart of God. So friends, there's freedom in that, isn't there? There's freedom for us to fully acknowledge our disorientation and pain without a happy ending. This is, that's what lament is. Fully giving attention to the pain that we are experiencing because of the brokenness around it and giving it and pointing it to God, saying, God. God's response to Hagar shows that God is the God of those on the fringes, of those who don't have it all together, of those deserted in the wilderness, of those who have been mistreated and cast aside. God is the God of those who have had to fight for survival in a society that has dehumanized them. That's the story of our faith. That's the God who finds us in the wilderness. We can be fully human and fully loved, seen and heard by the God of the universe. Now for the challenge. Another way we could look at Hagar's response of just crying is actually to say, you know, for some of us, that, that actually might be a deep sign of faith. Sometimes trust means stopping. Sometimes trusting God means giving up our striving, laying down our propensities to try to manage it all, trying to orchestrate the ending so that it, we speed up what we think God's going to do anyway, Stopping trying to manipulate God and, our, and others. Stopping trying to save it all. Some of us have chronic savior complexes that keep us busy and distracted and wandering because we're trying to fix it all. Friends, I can't be alone in this, please. Um, how many of us are anxious trying to fix our friends, trying to manage that group project with that bum group member? How many of us are trying to, to uh, lead that dysfunctional team or salvage that marriage and trying to dismantle this ideology and essentially we're trying to be the saviors of the world and of ourselves and of our communities? I was telling some, a few folks today, or this week, you know, um, when you're preaching, you're supposed to preach to yourself, but not just yourself. And, I, and this sermon's really for me, and I really hope, I've been praying that this is not just me, <laughs> but I think God has a word for us, okay? I mean, newcomer, we are a striving community. We want to advance the cause of Jesus and embody the kingdom of God on earth. And that is beautiful. I love that about us. We are adamant about it. And we say, you know, this is all up to God. We say with our minds and mouths, and we really believe it, that we aren't in control. That we aren't the saviors of our world, of this church. That's not up to us, but... Many of us, we believe it, but many of us operate from some embedded beliefs that God expects us to be superhuman in order to get it done. 
that the limitations of our humanity are liabilities to God's work that we got to hurry up and overcome. That we shouldn't be too impacted by life's hardships, that we, we can be the appropriate level of disoriented, but just not for too long. And honestly, I think there are some ways that we even talk about our faith that contribute to this. Many of us as Christians think that because we have a very real hope in the future, because we have a God who's all-powerful and who we know will win in the end, we think that we should hurry up and skip past the pain. Skip disorientation, just hit right right to divine encounter. Some of us hear the call to follow Jesus, and we expect that to mean following Jesus in miracles, in insightful questions, in perfection, and in resurrection. But we ignore that following Jesus also means following him into the wilderness, growing, learning, being betrayed, asking God to take this cup from me, like Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane, like talk about disorientation. Maybe feeling forsaken. Wilderness realities push us to be honest about our humanity. And I think to view it as a gift. What if God brings us into wilderness realities not to, uh, not to try to wear us down or demoralize us or just try to teach us a lesson, but what if God takes us into wilderness realities because God wants us to experience the freedom of being human, of being embracing our human limitations? What if God wants us to be free from thinking that it's up to us to save the world. God wants us to experience the gift of laying down our savior complexes so that God can carry that weight. Now when I say this, I'm not saying we should disengage or abdicate responsibility or quit or not live into your callings. It's none of that, but like, let's be real. We all know the difference between contributing to a project and owning a project, right? There's a whole different way of being when you can offer whatever gifts and skills that you have and to a situation and then leave it, leave the outcomes in someone else's hands. But too often we think we need to control the outcomes of our lives and our communities. We bleed too close into thinking that the outcome, this, this project that we call reconciliation, this project that we call shalom and redemption, we bleed real close into thinking that we're in charge of the outcomes of that project. But God's invitation to us as humans is that we would be contributors. The sort of pressure that we feel to be superhuman, to be in charge of the outcomes, is life-limiting. And I, I really believe that we were designed to thrive and flourish when we leave the outcomes to God. So a couple of weeks ago over President's Day, my family and I went to the beach, to the ocean beach. And we hadn't been to the ocean for four years and my kids are ages four, six, and eight. So they barely remember how the ocean works. And me being the very fun mom that I am, was like, hey, I'm gonna teach you the ocean. And so I said like, here's how you handle waves. You know, they're kind of big waves. 
And uh, Mark was not with me at the time. And so I was like, all right, guys, here's, these waves are big. They're going to be coming at you. And here's how you handle it. When you see a wave come in, you turn around, brace yourself, hold your breath, and let it pass. And it might jostle you a little bit, but just to, to beat the wave. This is how I live. It's really fun. Um, so I see the kids trying. I think I have a picture of Neo, my youngest, trying to stand against the wave. A, little, a couple hours later, you can take the picture down. A couple hours later, Mark comes along, my husband. And we are very different in how we approach everything. And so he comes along and he sees them, you know, pushing against the waves and all this. And, so, and I suddenly see him saying like, no, guys, don't spite the waves, ride the waves. Ride them, it's so much more fun. Yes, you get sand all over everything, which is not fun, but ride the waves. And some, some of us think that life's challenges in wilderness are things we need to conquer, combat, resist, stand strong against, prove that we are stronger than. We're stronger than every wave that comes. Just keep standing. And so we, we do our best to maintain control when each wave hits. Now, we're human. We can't beat the ocean. The waves will keep hitting. What if God's invitation to us is rather than trying to fight the waves of life, waves of disorientation, waves of pain, what if God's invitation is that we ride them and be open to where God takes us through that? We might get more jostled. We're going to have sand everywhere. But it's a ride. God will do something in us when we let It's when Hagar stops striving that she encounters the God who sees, that she encounters the God who cares about what she cares about, that which she holds most dear. And God reorients her through next step provision and vision. God opens her eyes to the well of water that she could not produce. God shows her tangibly that God cares for her, cares for that which she holds most dear, Ishmael. God reminds her that God's promise is secure and that God is her savior. God met her in this uncultivated wilderness and planted seeds of life and abundance for her. Her experience of disorientation in the wilderness was not the end that she thought it would be. It was just the beginning for her. God reorient her to a reality where God is God and she is human. And she could be free in that. And our wilderness realities are just the beginning for us. When we come to the end of ourselves and our strivings, do we trust that God is there and doing good work? Because honestly, we will not lay down our savior complexes and our burdens and our superhuman tendencies if we don't trust that God is not only there, but that this is where God does his best work. God cultivates life and growth and transformation in our human limitations, in the disorientation, in our wilderness realities. 
God is present in our lack of control. And in fact, it's in our limitations that God's limitlessness, limit, God's, that's right, right? Limitlessness? It's in our limitedness, oh my goodness, I shouldn't even say any of those things. But with our limits, when we know our limits, God shows God's self to be without limits. And for some of us, the biggest stretch of our faith is letting ourselves be human and God be God. Letting ourselves be human in our beautiful brokenness and limitations and, our, and being finite and letting God be the God of the universe. And as someone who struggles with that deeply, these sacred stories of scripture reorient me to the truth that we serve a God who does not fail. God holds the world in God's hands. God is the potter and we are the clay. God's already proven that God has and will save us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so we can let go of the responsibilities and burdens that we feel to be superhuman and let God carry that which God can only carry. And we can freely live into who God has called us to be. Sarah, you can come up. So friends, as we navigate our own wilderness realities this Lenten season, may I offer three invitations for us to just continue to reflect on and pray over. One, would you lay down that which is not yours to carry? In your disorientation, in as you feel like you, you are, have a tendency to try to control it all, may we rest in the reality that we are human and that is good and may we lay down those burdens what I've been doing this week is when situations or issues come into my mind that flood me with that pressure I am literally envisioning myself laying them under a tree and stepping back and saying God help me to trust you with those I can't but you can Secondly, rest in the God who sees and hears you. We have a God who is full of compassion, that wherever you are at, however you are coming to God, God's looking upon you with delight and compassion and love and sees and hears you. Hears your cries of what you can articulate, but also knows those longings that you can't even bring to name. So rest in that God. And third, look for signs of life. 